Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, Defending the Faith. So let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Can I Trust My Bible About Jesus? I don't know about you, but I'm not very good at coming up with witty, rapier-like responses to people who criticize me or people who mock my faith. If you're like me at all, I think up answers of what I should have said about a day later. And boy, once I think of the answers, I think if only I would have said that, wow, that, that would have showed them a thing or two. They'd be left speechless and they'd have to admit how right I am. You know that some of us have this silly idea that's what apologetics is all about, coming up with snappy answers in the heat of debate. Some of us hold this vain belief that there is somewhere out there a sledgehammer argument that's just going to knock out every other argument and lay it all in a heap of rubble. And then after we've used the sledgehammer, I mean, what else can people do but admit that Jesus Christ is Lord? You know, real people don't actually behave that way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 22 to 23, the Apostle Paul says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Now, if you think about it, that's really quite a mouthful. You know, various cultures have different tests for truth. The Jews at the time of Paul thought one could test truth by ascertaining whether there was a sign from heaven. If God set his seal of approval on something, he would do something miraculous, like parting the Red Sea or making the sun stand still or or causing it to stop rain for three years at the word of a prophet. And so when you heard of Jesus dying on a cross, well, to them, that hardly looked like a sign. On the other hand, Greeks seek wisdom. So most of us are aware that the three greatest philosophers in history came from the Greeks. I mean, Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato. Greek philosophy also had a very particular view of the interaction between body and spirit. And so for them, Christ dying bodily and rising bodily just, well, it seemed like folly. And here is Paul's point. The very nature of the cross, indeed the very nature of the account of Jesus, was culturally offensive to both Jews and Greeks. And yet, in spite of this barrier, he went right on preaching Christ and the cross. So the point I'm trying to make is that winning someone to Christ is never a matter of clever arguments. And and finding that one reason that will just be overwhelming, that doesn't exist. What we want, as I've stated repeatedly in the series, is to get people across the moats and help them to the castle. We want them to discover Jesus. That's the castle. But in many cases, they just can't do that. They're staring at a series of moats that prevent them from getting there. You know, one of the contemporary moats that prevent contemporary people from getting to the castle, you know, it's the belief that many have that somewhere out there we can have no certainty at all as to who the real Jesus was. You know, if the Jesus Seminar said that over 80% of the gospel records about Jesus are false, then, well, who can say? You know, I find it valuable to help people ask a question. Just how reliable is anyone's knowledge of Jesus? And so if I were today in a a serious conversation with someone about Jesus, and he or she were asking serious questions about how I might know that the Bible's version of Jesus is trustworthy, well, I'd point out six things. 
I try to help my friend ask six questions about the Bible, and I would try to help them discover the answer to those questions. Now, before I go on, might I say that helping people to discover that they can trust the Bible only helps them cross the moat. It doesn't get them saved. They need to consider and to discover Jesus. But they can't do that if they think it's impossible to do that. So here's my first question. Just how reliable are the manuscripts that we possess? I know that seems like an odd place to start, but every historian who's considering any account of ancient history asks this most basic of questions. You know, that's because we don't have the original manuscripts, the actual writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If indeed they still exist, well, they've been lost. All we have are manuscripts, copies taken from the original. And then the copies are copied. So how reliable are the manuscripts that we possess? Are they accurate to the originals? Well, one way of answering that question is to compare the documents that we have in our Christian Bible, that is, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and ask how these compare with other ancient historical documents. In other words, how do we know that anything at all is history? And so, for instance, Julius Caesar wrote a history entitled The Gallic War, written during the years 58 to 50 BC. We don't possess his actual writing. We possess 10 copied manuscripts, the oldest being copied around AD 850. So it was copied 900 years after the original document was written. Wow. And yet, no skillful historian seriously questions the integrity of these manuscripts. In fact, most historical documents that all historians use are read from manuscripts that are 1,000 years removed from the original. Now compare that to the four Gospels. The book of John was written around AD 85, and we actually have a manuscript fragment of John dated shortly before AD 150. That means just 65 years between the original writing and a copied manuscript fragment. Now, even more fascinating is the fact that recently, a fragment of Mark's gospel was found, which appears to be dated between AD 80 and 90. You know, that's from the first century. That's absolutely staggering. You know, indeed, scholars point out that we have about 50 full manuscripts, copies of the original, all dated before AD 300. Basically, 50 manuscript copies, all only about 270 years old. You know, what's more, we have a great many portions of manuscripts, all about 130 years from the original, and as many as a dozen dated 70 to 120 years from the original. So by the standards of historical research, there is no ancient writing that has better manuscript evidence than our four Gospels, and for that matter, of the entire New Testament. You know, if you doubt the authenticity of the New Testament, you have to doubt the authenticity of everything we know about ancient history, and no serious historian does that. But before we move on, I need to add one point. Recent archaeological finds, both in the Dead Sea Scrolls in Israel and a find of one-half million ancient documents discovered in southern Egypt, point out that in the dry climate of the Near East, that manuscripts were used from 200 to 300 years. That's how long they lasted. So why does that matter? 
Well, some scholars are now leaning in favor of the view that the best manuscripts from our four Gospels were actually manuscripts that copied directly off of the original written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are second-generation documents. So one original copy of Matthew, for instance, and a lot of manuscripts we possess copied directly from Matthew himself. So what does that mean? It means there's almost no chance that the New Testament that we have was corrupted. Most likely, we have over 99% accuracy of what the original writers actually wrote. And furthermore, most differences are a matter of spelling. But does that prove that we have the real picture of the historical Jesus? Well, frankly, no. But it does prove that we have the actual writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that we can scientifically and historically prove they're not fakes, they're not corruptions, but we have what the writers actually wrote. So at least that's a starting place. Okay, that's one piece of evidence. Let's consider more. Second question, do the documents we have match real history? You know, historians have a word, and the word is verisimilitude. I know that's a $3 word, but it's a very important word if you're a historian. When examining an ancient document, historians ask, does what this document says match with what we know of the place and the people and the time period that is described in the document? That's one way to decide whether or not we have true history or just mythology. So consider the four Gospels. They speak of people like Pontius Pilate, Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa, and so forth. What's more, they speak of real places like Jerusalem and the little village of Capernaum and Nazareth, the Sea of Galilee, and so forth. And they speak about ancient customs like Passover and Sabbath and divorce laws. They speak of institutions like the temple. They speak about officers like priests and the Sanhedrin and temple guards and centurions. Now contrast that with the so-called secret gospels that Dan Brown likes to talk about, like the Gospel of Thomas, that doesn't even mention that Jesus is Jewish and he gives no sense of Palestinian life. One fake document entitled the Gospel of Peter isn't even sure who governs Jerusalem or Judea. In other words, no verisimilitude. And so historians usually dismiss these as having no real historical value. Christians can say with great confidence that the documents that we have reflect the real life and history of the time period in which they speak. June 2020, Back to the Bible Canada will be partnering with Back to the Bible India to conduct its third annual Bible teaching conference hosting hundreds of Indian pastors across India, beginning in Delhi, then moving to Hyderabad and Chennai. Under the leadership of Dr. John Newfeld, pastors will learn the discipline of effectively teaching the Bible and sharing the gospel. This year, you can sponsor the attendance of an Indian pastor who may otherwise not have the resources to attend for only $55. It includes the cost of the conference, resources, travel, accommodations, and food. What a great investment in the church. Join us in equipping pastors in India. Call with your gift to support international initiatives or to send one or two or more pastors to the India Bible Teaching Conference this June. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit sendapastor.ca or backtothebible.ca.
Dr. Craig Evans notes that there are many renowned archaeologists and historians who are not Christians, yet frequently quote the Gospels as reliable and historical documents that help us get a picture of first century life. Indeed, they do. So we know we possess reliable manuscripts, and we know the documents describe real history. Now, here's a third question, one that troubles so many people today. Why do Christians reject the other accounts of Jesus. Now, here's where the conspiracy theory people are hard at work. Dan Brown wants us to believe that the church persecuted everyone who told another story of Jesus and has tried to suppress that for 2,000 years. Again, if you're a conspiracy theorist, I mean, that's really cool. But unfortunately, the real evidence looks remarkably different. To put it simply, the reason we accept Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is because they're eyewitness accounts. And the reason we reject the Gnostic Gospels is because the earliest of them was written over 100 years after Christ. That is, they contain no eyewitness testimony at all. And as any historian and attorney will tell you, eyewitness testimony is always preferred over third-generation accounts. Furthermore, these so-called secret Gospels Well, they reflect a philosophical bent. See, these Gospels are often called Gnostic Gospels, and that's because Gnosticism, it's a philosophy that rose after the time of Jesus, had become popular. And so the so-called secret Gospels are just an attempt, several hundred years later, to remake Jesus, to make him suit a popular philosophy of the day. Now, I'm sorry if that answer is boring, but Dan Brown can't write a bestseller about that. So we've answered several questions. The Bible does not contain fakes. It does describe real history. We use only four because these four are based on eyewitness testimony. Here now is the fourth question. How do we know it's real history? And that is, sure enough, these accounts are set into a real historical background, but how do we know the accounts themselves are real history? Well, let's do a little test. Some of you who are older remember September of 1974. In fact, you're never going to forget it. I was in grade 12, and we canceled classes on September 28th. It was the last game of the first-ever Canada-Russia hockey series, and it galvanized the country and made patriots of everyone. With less than a minute left in the game, Phil Esposito scored the winning goal for Canada with a blistering slap shot from the blue line. Uh I know a number of you are about to correct me. It wasn't a slap shot. It was a mad scramble, and it wasn't Esposito. It was Paul Henderson, and it wasn't 1974. It was 1972. You see, while there's a living memory of a great event, you don't have opportunity for myths, legends, even certain mistakes to develop. Myths need about three generations to develop. So let's consider the evidence. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians just slightly over 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 11, he accurately recounts Christ's words at the Last Supper. And in chapter 14, verse 4, he recounts 500 eyewitnesses who actually saw the resurrected Jesus. You know, what's more, almost all scholars agree that the Synoptic Gospels, Mark was written in the late 50s or early 60s, written at the latest, 30 years after the resurrection, Luke written around the same time, and Matthew shortly after that, that these three books are written between 30 and 40 years after Christ. And furthermore, most scholars think that Matthew, Mark, and Luke made use of a previous document sometimes called Q. Now, I suspect this document may well have been a part of Matthew's notes, which he took during the Jesus event. John wrote probably about 55 years after the event. In any case, there is not time for myths and legends to develop. 
The community of eyewitnesses made up of thousands was just too large to allow it to be based on myths. Indeed, this is the very thing that made up the content of the early church preaching. Remember Acts 26, verse 26. Paul is speaking to King Agrippa. He says, For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. And that's the point. Now, let's go back to our passage, 2 Peter 1.16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then Peter bolsters his case. In verse 19, he says, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word. Peter bolsters his case by pointing out that these events, which are attested by eyewitnesses, are events prophesied in ancient scriptures for 1,500 years. Prophets have been foretelling these events. So here's the case. Since legends don't develop in the first generations, since eyewitnesses were credible, since the gospels we have inherited can be proved to be authentic and not forgeries, and since the only legends that we have are the so-called secret gospels, and since the Jesus event was prophesied, the weight of evidence is clearly on the gospel side. But let's ask two more questions. Fifth, what about the apparent contradictions in the gospels? Now, whenever I'm asked that, I ask people what contradiction they have in mind, and most of the time people don't know. They've just heard that there are some. But of course, there are people who might struggle. For instance, you know, why does Luke only mention one demoniac and Matthew mentions two? So in truth, there are differences in the four accounts, but you'd expect that. If you have four people telling us the exact same things, you wouldn't have an eyewitness account. You'd have collusion. And that's exactly what we don't have in the four Gospels. Yes, three of the writers seem to have made use of a common set of notes, but each of them is also free to add things that they remember. And John, who writes last, is quite aware that the material from the three Gospels is widely known. So this Gospel adds personal elements of Jesus not contained in the three. That's how real history reads. Let's ask one final question, number six. What other evidence is there? Well, C.S. Lewis, one of the great Christian apologists from the 20th century, was at first a naturalist. Because he was a professor of literature at Oxford in England, he decided to read the gospel accounts. Lewis had made a career of teaching literature with an emphasis on mythology. When Lewis thought of reading the gospels, he thought that he would most likely be reading mythology. Well, let's let Lewis speak for himself. Here's what he says. One has to take the Bible for what it is, for it demands incessantly to be taken on its own terms. And then, when he came to the four Gospels, this leading expert in mythology insisted that the Gospels were no mythology at all. Again, I'm going to let Lewis speak for himself. He said, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they're like. So if someone tells me that something in a gospel is legend or romance, I want to know how many legends and romances he has read, how well his palate is trained in detecting the flavor, not how many years he spent in the gospel. And so this man, who is most likely the leading expert in the world in his day on mythology, said with confidence that there is nothing at all in the gospels that would make one think one is reading anything at all but real history. And they had, according to Lewis, all the marks of authenticity. And that brings us to the real objection that people have with the gospel accounts. 
The Jesus that's presented in the Gospels is a Jesus who's born of a virgin, who healed the sick, who raised the dead, who commanded nature, and it did his bidding. Ultimately, he rose from the dead and proclaimed himself to be Lord of life and death, the only son of the living God. And if you begin reading the Gospels with a bias that such a thing just can't happen, well, you're, you're going to reject it outright. But please don't think that you're rejecting it because you have a historical reason for doing so. But here's my challenge. You still owe it to yourself to read the four Gospels, the four eyewitness accounts of Jesus. You owe it to yourself to let them tell you what they saw and what they heard. C.S. Lewis did, and in the end, to his own surprise, he heard the footsteps of the God whom he said he was determined not to meet. He called himself the most reluctant convert in England. But that's the power of the account of Jesus. I dare you to read it. What you discover might just shock you, and it might utterly transform you. You owe yourself that much. Read it for yourself and ask yourself, is this the real Jesus? You know, Heavenly Father, I want to pray for everyone who has heard these words today. I pray, Heavenly Father, that they might consider and that they might ask themselves whether or not the things that we have been told of Jesus are really true. Heavenly Father, I thank you that these things were not done in a corner. I thank you rather, Lord God, that they were given to us by credible eyewitnesses of the majesty of Jesus. Thank you, O God, for what you have given us when you gave us those four accounts. In Christ's name I pray, amen. John, an intriguing message today. Let me ask you a quick question. Why do you think we're so quick to to hang on and cling on to something like Dan Brown's novels of fiction and so quick to sort of desert the historic truth of who Jesus is? Uh, Ben, I think two things. One is that uh, a lot of people are just ignorant about how history is done. And so, I mean, they, they they just go according to conspiracy theories and that just works well. And another is, I mean, if it really is true, and it clearly is, that the Bible presents us with an eyewitness account of Jesus, and since that's true, I mean, we have to come to terms with a Jesus who tells us to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Suddenly the game changes. So, Ben, I've argued for a long time that the real issue is not the truthfulness of Scripture. It's our moral condition that simply doesn't want to repent. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue this series, Defending the Faith, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. February is a critical month for raising funds to support the international ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. The primary focus continues to be India and surrounding areas, providing Bible-teaching resources that include the teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, aired and distributed across India, throughout much of Asia and the Middle East. Other efforts include partnering with Back to the Bible India to re-establish a significant, vibrant and sustainable expression of ministry. This month, we're praying that you'll join us in reaching our budget of $75,000. And to celebrate these efforts and as our free gift to you, We want to send you a limited edition music CD created specifically for Back to the Bible Canada called Songs of Zion. This is an inspirational CD performed by friend of Back to the Bible India, violinist Shalem Christie. 
Call today for your free gift to support these international efforts and to request your CD gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.